0: Good evening, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18, the gospel of John chapter 18, continuing our study through John's account of Jesus' life and death. I'd like to begin tonight with a question. You might think me strange for this question, but it's a thought-provoking question nonetheless. I'm going to give you a list of things, of events from church history. And I want you to try and imagine what these things have in common. The Amish, the Crusades and other holy wars, monks and nuns, state-sponsored persecution of Baptists, Fundamentalism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. What in the world do all these things have in common? Well, among perhaps other things, each of these events or groups was at least partially motivated or the result of some wrong view of the kingdom of God. Some of these things emphasize, overemphasize the spirituality of Christ's kingdom, and had thereby produced a faulty view of this physical age. Others reinterpret the kingdom of God with no reference to the Old Testament and all of its theology that builds up to the Messiah. Others forget that Christ's kingdom is spiritual at all, and thereby put all their hopes in the kingdoms of this age. Tonight we will continue in John, and we'll see Jesus before Pilate. We'll see that Christ speaks about His kingdom as a spiritual kingdom, as an otherworldly kingdom in contrast to the kingdoms of this age. And we'll spend most of the sermon thinking about what it means for Christ's kingdom to be spiritual or otherworldly or heavenly, if you will. What it means for our lives, for our children, for our fears and anxiety, for our ethics in this world, for our souls. So look with me in John 18... I'll begin reading in verse 28 and go through verse 36, 37, through verse 37. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, "'Take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws.' The Jews said to him, "'It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. "'This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken "'to show by what kind of death he was going to die.' So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' And Jesus answered, "'Do you say this of your own accord "'or do others say this about me?' And Pilate answered, "'Am I a Jew?' Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and I would not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would speak tonight, that you would reveal sins and anxieties and worries, but that you would also bring comfort, that you would show us how your heavenly kingdom, your otherworldly kingdom, your spiritual kingdom, is of great encouragement to us. How faith in your Son is what sustains us. How a vision of your coming kingdom is what allows us to persevere and endure the trials of this life. Father, I pray that your name would be hallowed and that your kingdom would come. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we looked at the preceding verses 28 through 32 and we saw the sinful hearts of the Jewish leaders. How they violated their own legal code, how they arrested a man at night and condemned condemned him and sentenced him on the same day, which broke their law. They struck him, which broke his law. He had no accuser, no witnesses to the accusations, no charges made against him, which broke their law. We saw the hatred in their hearts, the malice they had towards Christ and everything he represented. And we saw, too, how that hatred spilled over towards Pilate and how they dealt with him. But most of all, we saw their hypocrisy, how they wanted to appear righteous and holy, all the while blaspheming God's law in their hearts. And tonight, we will spend our time looking at the reign of our great king, who, having a kingship questioned by Pilate, says twice that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not from this world. Now, as I highlighted in my introduction, there are many errors that we wander into if we get the nature of Christ's kingdom wrong. So before I get into explaining what the essence of Christ's kingdom is, I want to explain two things that Christ is not saying when he says his kingdom is not of this world. So number one, Christ is not saying that this physical world is unimportant. When Christ says his kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying that this world is unimportant. We've seen this error pop up in various groups throughout church history that emphasize the spiritual aspects of Christ's kingdom, but do so in a way that excuses their behavior. They say, I'm, I'm a spiritual child of God. I'm a resident of the spiritual kingdom of God. Therefore, what I do with my physical body is of irre- irrelevance. doesn't matter. I can engage in fornication, homosexuality, drunkenness, adultery, See, they rationalized their behavior saying that the soul is spiritual and therefore part of God's kingdom and our flesh is going to be buried and turned into dust anyway so we can do whatever we want. Well, this is blatantly wrong, inconsistent with the New Testament, indeed the whole Bible. God has great concern for the physical world, including our physical human flesh. God's love for the world was the very reason that His Son came down and took on physical flesh. The Bible clearly links our physical bodies as an integral part of our embodied human existence. When we sin in our physical bodies, using our physical bodies, it significantly impacts our spiritual condition. Read 1 Corinthians 6 sometime and see how Paul highlights the spiritual impact of using our bodies for sin. We must not fall into the error of thinking that this physical world, including our physical bodies, is unimportant. Second, When Christ says His kingdom is not of this world, He does not mean that His disciples are to withdraw from the world. That's the error committed by some of the Amish, and the fundamentalists, and some monks. They believe that Christ's kingdom is spiritual, so we must pull back from the world, hide among ourselves, wait for Christ to return, lest we be stained by the flesh and the world's lusts. But Christ is not encouraging retreat from the world. Not only did he come down into the world, he sends his disciples into the world. In the previous chapter, we saw in John 17, he prayed to the Father and said, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them, the disciples, into the world. Likewise, in Matthew 28, he sends us into the world, proclaiming a message, making disciples. And so Christ saying that his kingdom is not of this world does not mean that the physical world is unimportant. And it does not mean that we are to withdraw from the world. But what does it mean when Christ says His kingdom is not of the world? Well, The main thing I want us to reflect upon tonight is the spiritual or heavenly nature of Christ's kingdom. The spiritual or heavenly nature of Christ's kingdom. And we'll examine that in various ways from different angles. We'll look at the entrance into the kingdom. The spiritual kingship of Christ and the spiritual warfare of his kingdom. When Christ says that his kingdom is not of this world, he's using very significant language within the gospel of John. We've seen throughout this gospel thus far that John uses many examples of dichotomy. That is, he puts things into pairs of contrasting elements in order to highlight a spiritual reality. John talks about light and darkness, freedom and slavery, sight. And blindness, being from above versus being from below, and righteousness and evil. So, when Christ says his kingdom is not of this world, he means instead that his reign, his rule is heavenly. His spiritual kingdom, his reign of light and righteousness is not a kingdom whose essence is in line with the fleshly, blind, evil patterns of the kingdoms of this world. So, let's look at a few aspects that highlight the spiritual reign of Christ's kingdom. We see that first in the entrance into the kingdom. The means of entrance into the kingdom highlights the spiritual essence of Christ's kingdom. The kingdoms of this world are visible. They are external. They require you to pass through some sort of gate, a portal. They require you to pass some test or some standard to get in. When we came back from Ecuador a few weeks ago, coming into the U.S., we had to answer questions. One of us had to be interrogated. This guy had to have his luggage torn open and inspected, which Sean blamed on my, my beard, but we'll argue about that later. And so I had to be made sure, they had to make sure that I was fit to enter into this physical realm. But Christ's kingdom is different. To get into Christ's kingdom. You cannot answer questions or pass a test. You can't bribe your way in. You can't get in because you're related to somebody who's already a citizen. You can't get in because of a marriage visa. You can't get into the kingdom of heaven by being smuggled in. There's no way to get into the kingdom of heaven outside of being born again. Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3, which we've already looked at, He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. The spirituality of the kingdom is demonstrated by the spirituality required to enter into it. You can't muscle your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot buckle down and work harder. You can't earn enough holy points. You can't give away enough money or serve enough meals to the poor. You can't read enough Bible verses. You can't answer enough catechism questions. You can't pray enough prayers to earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. It takes new birth. It takes the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. It takes regeneration. It takes a new heart which is planted within you, replacing that heart of stone and giving you a heart of faith, a heart of obedience and dependence. And just as you contributed nothing to your physical birth, you are also dependent upon another for your spiritual birth. But the good news is that God has provided a way for us to be born of the Spirit. John says in chapter 1, the true light, that is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own people, and they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The Jews did not receive Christ. They did not hear the truth of Christ. Instead, they loved the darkness and hated the light. And they failed to enter the kingdom of God by being born again. But Christ has offered another way. It says that to all who did receive him, to all who did believe that he was the son sent by the father, to... All who loved the light rather than the darkness, He gave the right to become children of God. That's how we enter into the kingdom of God, by receiving Christ, by trusting in Him, by believing what He has said in His Word, by believing that He is the faithful Son sent by the Father. Do you believe that? Have you entered into the kingdom of God by being born of the Holy Spirit? Have you turned from your sins and rejected the king of this realm in order to take on the kingship? Of our spiritual king. Or are you still in darkness. Blinded. Rejecting Christ as the Jews did. The offer remains for all of us tonight. We see the essence of Christ's kingdom. By the spiritual nature. Of entrance into it. Let's look also. At the spiritual or heavenly nature. Of our king. The spiritual or heavenly nature. Of our king. And we'll see this in three categories. His person, his manner, and his reign. His person, his manner, and his reign. If we get the person of our king wrong, if we don't understand the qualities of who he is, then we have missed everything. Some people believe that Jesus was a mere man. He was a teacher, a provocative teacher, perhaps even a political agitator. He was a philosopher, even a great one, worthy of a place in the pantheon of great philosophers, right? Between Plato and Socrates. But they cannot, they will not accept that he was God incarnate. That is ridiculous. That's a superstition. That's a myth made up by the early church leaders to manipulate the ignorant masses, they will say. But Christ was no mere man, no mere philosopher. He was not a political agitator. He says in verse 37, for this reason I came into the world. He came. He chose to come. He decided to enter into this physical realm. How many of you decided to be born? Nope. None of us did. But Jesus decided to be born. Jesus has spoken of his pre-existence several times in this gospel. He is the incarnate word of God who was with God and who was God from the very beginning. He said of himself, before Abraham was, I am. He prayed to the Father to receive back the glory that he had when he was with the Father before the world existed. Furthermore, furthermore, what mere man has the power to make the waves stop, to still the wind, to make the lame to walk, to make the blind to see? No man. That's because Jesus was no mere man. He is also fully God, the eternal one, the creator, the all-knowing, omniscient one. He is the faithful son of the Father, possessing the fullness of the divine nature in his person. We must see that Christ is a spiritual king in order to see that he is over a spiritual kingdom. And that he is not like the kings of this age. We also see the spirituality of our king by noting the manner of his kingship. We see his spiritual or heavenly reign through the manner of his kingship. The kings of this world love their position. They love to be served. They love the places of honor. They like lavish palaces and opulent parties, ornate possessions. They posture themselves as the elite, as the trendsetters, the suave, the sophisticated. They like to be the center of attention and they demand to be treated as such. Furthermore, worldly leaders like to show off their power. They're never content to stay home. They like to strut their stuff. They parade their troops around for all of the world to see. They love to march their armies victoriously back into their reign. Like Napoleon marching his troops through the Arch de Triomphe in Paris. Or like Kim Jong-un parading his army and his missiles around North Korea. The kings of this world like to get their way by muscle and manipulation, by control and by cunning, by domination and deception. But our king is not like these kings. He did not love his station nor cling to his privilege. He wasn't concerned with political aspirations like the kings of this world. In fact, he gave up his royal station in order to come down. Think about it. The divine royal son left his opulent throne over creation in order to come down and be born in a cattle stall. He left his heavenly seat in order to be seated in a feeding trough. He did not demand to be served and pampered. No, he came to serve, to seek and to save. He picked up the towel in the washbasin and washed the dirty feet of his own disciples. What condescension is this? What glory? What kind of king is this? He's a spiritual king very different from the kings of this world. He was not concerned with military aspirations like the kings of this world. He didn't come to show off his military might. He didn't come into town parading his grand armies. He didn't even come into town on a grand stallion. He came into town on a donkey. What kind of king is this? He didn't march his troops around to showcase his might. In fact, he told Peter to put his sword away. He didn't call down legions of angels to come to his defense. He walked alone Because he chose to go to his death alone. Our king is a very different kind of king, a spiritual, heavenly king of a spiritual or heavenly kingdom. And we see this through the manner of his reign. We see also the spiritual kingship of our king through the scope of his rule. The scope of his rule. The people of this world look at our king and they laugh. What kind of king is this? He can't be a king. He has no kingdom. His subjects are scattered across the globe. They have no territory. They have no borders, no security, no ruler, no government, no armies. They have nothing to unify them or protect them. No place of refuge. And in one sense, they're right. Our king had no land, no territory. Indeed, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Our king didn't even have a pillow to put his head on. When the crowds left Jesus, they went home to their beds, but Jesus had no such place. He had no cities in his kingdom, no counties in his rule, no states or provinces, no borders to defend and expand like the borders of this world. But that does not mean that his kingdom is without scope. It does not mean that he he has no reign over people and he does not have a territory. Christ says that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who is born of the truth knows the truth and knows that Jesus is the truth. And every true sheep of God knows the voice of his shepherd and will listen to him. Everyone who has been born of the spirit knows when the spiritual king is speaking and our king does have a rule and reign and that's in the hearts of his people. That's where Christ is reigning right now. He is our spiritual king over a spiritual people. And that spiritual people does not look like the kingdoms of this world. We don't all have the same skin color or speak the same language. We don't all share the same culture. But what we do share is the very spirit of our spiritual king. We submit to the same spiritual king. And we are all citizens of the same spiritual kingdom. We see Christ's spiritual kingship through his person through his manner and through the scope of his reign the scope of his rule thus far we've seen the spiritual essence of the kingdom by looking at how you enter into it and by looking at the spirituality of our king now let's look at the spiritual warfare of the kingdom the spiritual warfare of the kingdom Its warfare has two components to it who we battle and how we battle The kingdoms of this world are usually clearly defined. They have borders, they have friends, and they have enemies. They have alliances, and they have those with whom they have conflict. They can spot their enemies easily, and they know who they are fighting. The line between us and them is clear in a worldly kingdom. But the spiritual warfare of Christ's kingdom is different. Our enemies aren't the same. We don't have a race or a nation or a culture that we war against. We don't have a people group that is our sworn enemy. We don't have other countries that are our nemesis. Now, the New Testament explains that our enemies are not of the flesh. They are spiritual. Paul says in Galatians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, we, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. ...against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We don't see people from other nations as enemies to be killed. We don't even see people from other religions as the real enemies. They are blinded by the God of this world. They are blinded by the ruler of their kingdom. Satan. Satan is our real enemy and he has blinded them to the truth of the gospel. That's how a terrorist like Paul can be saved... ...and can be made into a powerful apostle in a spiritual kingdom... That's how sinners like you and me, once enemies of God's kingdom, can be saved and made into citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. And this is crucial for us to see, because it's how we can keep from hating our enemies. How can we possibly love our enemies as Christ commands us to do? Well, we can love them, because we see that by the truth of the gospel, they can become our spiritual brothers and sisters. They can become fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We don't have to hate the Muslim radical, or the Mormon, or the Unitarian, or the Jew, or the Buddhist, or anyone else. Because we see that they're made in God's image, worthy of dignity, and they are blinded by the ruler of this age. The spirituality of Christ's kingdom helps us see that our real foes are not flesh and blood, but are spiritual. Furthermore, the means of our spiritual warfare is unlike the world's warfare. That's why Christians don't strap themselves with bombs and go in and blow up mosques. We don't battle against flesh and blood. We don't use worldly methods of violence. We can't put a gun to somebody's head and make them a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Spiritual birth is required to enter into God's kingdom. You can't physically manipulate somebody into the kingdom of God. We can't tackle somebody into the kingdom of God. That's why... And that's how we battle for our kingdom, is with spiritual warfare. We battle using spiritual weapons of prayer, of love, of sacrifice, of truth, of proclamation, of peace, of patience. We battle putting on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6. We battle using the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. We battle knowing that our real enemy is not the person that we see in front of us, or the person that we see on the news. The real enemy is the ruler of the empire that has power in this age, who has vowed a perpetual battle against our spiritual kingdom and our spiritual king. It's Satan. That's who our enemy is. Our spiritual kingdom is seen in how we spiritually wage war against the kingdoms of this age. And so we've seen tonight that the spiritual or heavenly essence of the kingdom of Christ is demonstrated by the work... Or needed to enter into it the spirituality of our king and the spirituality of our warfare so as I begin to wrap things up let me offer a few concluding thoughts to make this somewhat abstract doctrine a little more practical for us first in light of the spiritual nature of the kingdom consider the security of our kingdom the security of our kingdom If our kingdom were earthly, if our kingdom were like the kingdoms of this age, then we would always have to be anxious, worried that our kingdom was threatened, that our leader might be toppled. We'd have to be like people who have politics as their God, who are obsessed with every little bit of news about the nation. But God's children need not be so. We can confidently be assured of our kingdom's perpetuity and security. No ruler can invade our kingdom. In fact, Christ has said himself that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. That means the kingdom of God is going to smash down the gates of hell. We don't have to be afraid. No fleshly king can threaten us. What's the worst that someone can do? Kill us and send us immediately to the blessed joy of our Savior and King? No. They cannot take the kingdom from us. Meditate on that security. Calvin says, if we are cruelly treated by wicked men, still our salvation is secured by the kingdom of Christ, which is not subject to the whims of men. Though there are innumerable storms by which the world is continually agitated, the kingdom of Christ, in which we ought to seek our peace, is separated from the world. The spirituality of Christ's kingdom is great joy for us because it is secure, eternally secure, along with our spiritual entrance into it. We do not need to be anxious in this life but trust in our sovereign king and the security of his kingdom. Second, beware of forgetting about the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom. Beware of forgetting about the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom. We can overemphasize the kingdoms of this world. We can be tempted to read the papers and watch the news and listen to the radio and put all of our hopes in the kings of this world. If we can just get this guy elected or this person in office or this person in power or this, this party in the majority of this law passed, then then we'll have prosperity and peace. Then all of our dreams will come true. Never. Not until the king returns. Christ speaks to us and he proclaims loudly, What does it profit for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? He could have said that to the Jews and said, What profit does does it do to you Jews to rid yourselves of Roman occupation and yet lose your soul? Or he can say to us, What profit is it to us to gain the White House or the Supreme Court and yet lose our very own souls? Concern yourself with the gospel and with sin and righteousness, with eternal matters. Keep the concerns of this world in their proper perspective, in the perspective of eternity, lest you become consumed by the cares of this world with anxiety about the political climate, with anger and rage when your candidates aren't in power, or with depression when the kings of this world begin acting worldly. Instead, remember that Christ told us that there will not be peace in this age. He told us that there will be wars and rumors of wars until He returns. But remember that He will return, which leads to the third point. Joyfully anticipate the consummation of Christ's kingdom joyfully anticipate the consummation of Christ's kingdom. He said there will be wars and rumors of wars during this age, but there is an expiration date. It will not always be so. Christ has told us about His future coming kingdom. His spiritual kingdom will one day be fully revealed on this earth. His kingdom will be a kingdom different from the rulers of this age where the great deceiver will be finally bound and cast into the lake of fire. There will be no more wars, no more contention, the elimination of all turf battles and vain boasting of princes. There will be no more exploitation, no more manipulation, no more political posturing. No, this spiritual kingdom will be fully revealed as the physical kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. A kingdom of eternal peace. A kingdom of eternal communion with our great King. And a kingdom of joy and satisfaction for all of His subjects. A kingdom of no more pain. No more war. No more faulty rulers. No more unjust magistrates. No more sin. This is the anticipated coming kingdom. And the vision of that kingdom is what helps us endure with the worldly kingdoms of this age. Have you entered into His kingdom? Have you heard the message of His kingdom tonight? Have you heard of His evaluation of you? That you are... Perhaps a sinner lost in darkness, enslaved, blinded by the ruler of this age. Have you heard his call to you to repent and believe, to enter into his spiritual kingdom, to come under his glorious reign, to be forgiven of your sins and given new life by the Holy Spirit? That offer stands for you tonight. And if you have already come, if you are believing, then I pray that you'll be encouraged that our great heavenly King will one day return in glory that His hidden kingdom will finally be fully revealed and that we will reign with Him for all of eternity after He has justly judged the kingdoms of this world. I want to close tonight by reading a passage of Scripture from Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. In this chapter we read a prophecy about what Christ's future kingdom will be. About the joy that we will experience in it when He subdues the kingdoms of this age. When God is forever united with the subjects of His kingdom. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, For your light has come. For the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. And thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. And His glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light. And the kings and the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They shall gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. And your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall shall cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those of Sheba shall come. They shall bring frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with the acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring the, your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you, for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I had mercy upon you. Your gates shall be opened continually. See the security there? Your gates don't have to close. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings lead in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that you will not serve, you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid to waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, the beauty, the palace of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. God's enemies will be bowed down. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations and you shall nurse at the breast of kings and you shall know that i the lord am your savior and your redeemer the mighty one of jacob instead of bronze i will bring gold instead of iron i will bring silver instead of wood bronze instead of stones iron i will make you overseers peace make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness violence shall be no more heard in your land devastation and destruction within your borders you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more, your light by day. For your brightness, the moon shall give you li- nor brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your joy. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and in your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be righteous; they shall possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten. That's the kingdom that awaits us, where light, where God is lighting the sky for us, where our gates are always open because we stand so secure in His protection. Let us pray.